everybody. I, uh, before we get into uh, the word this morning, um, I don't know if some of you have been watching the news, but Morocco was hit with a horrific earthquake. Uh, over 2,000 people have lost their lives. Um, and that, you know, as somebody especially who's got a real big heart for missions, that weighs heavy on me. Because a lot of these people are people who, for whatever reason, either didn't get the chance or just don't know who Jesus is. Um, and some of the people who are suffering are suffering in that same way, and they're suffering without hope. Uh, so I just want to take a minute this morning that we can pray uh, for the people there uh, and for the country as well. So, Lord Jesus, I thank you that we can gather together this morning. I thank you that as a body that is diverse, as a body that is um, uniquely called to do the things that you have called us to do, that we can come together and lift up the people of Morocco in this. People who are suffering, so many have lost family members. So many have no idea where their family is. They don't know if they've lost family members. They're just waiting to find the news. Lord Jesus, we pray that it is in a time like this that you can move in strength and power. It is in a, a time like this that you use disasters that happen, that you use chaos that exists on the world to draw people closer to you, Jesus. So Jesus, we pray that you do that, that you reach out to people, Jesus, that you speak to some of these people in dreams, uh, that, that let them know that you are present, that you are real, that you are the king, that you are the Messiah. You are the one that they are looking for, even if they don't know it, Jesus. That you reveal yourself, and in that you bring comfort to those who need comfort, that you bring healing to those who are afflicted, that you bring uh, just uh, joy and peace to those who are mourning. Jesus, be shown to be who you are. We trust you to work the way that you see fit in this tragedy, Jesus. Amen. Well, I am very excited this morning because we are in Revelation, because what pastor doesn't desire to preach from Revelation? I should have thought this one a little bit more through when I was planning out the Mission of God series, but trust me, it's all going to wrap up nicely. Um, so we're, we're in the mission of God, and this is week six. Week, uh, this is week six. So next week's going to be a little bit different. I'm going to kind of wrap it up with uh, one part sharing uh, where we're at with shift and what all that's going on with, uh, and then two, uh, my testimony. Uh, a lot of people have asked, and I figured let's just do it all at once, get it out there, and then you can decide if you still like me or not. Um, but this week we're in Revelation, and, and before we jump in, I really think it's important for us to actually look at some things that are problems, um, and not even problems, but just problems that exist within the church when we're trying to interpret this book. So I want to start by reading Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. It says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, that God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus, whatever he saw. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep what is written because the time is near. The word of the Lord. With Revelation, we have something that's, that's really unique, and that's that Revelation is meant to be a blessing. Jesus says, and, and John writes, blessed is the one who reads these words. However, for some reason, and, and it's because he's crafty, the enemy has used this book as a tool of division within the church. It's supposed to be a book of blessing to the church, and it's been used as a tool of division. Some of the divisions are, is there a rapture or no rapture? And if there's a rapture, when is it? Is there a literal thousand-year reign, or is there no thousand-year reign? 
Is it supposed to be literal or is it supposed to be metaphorical? What's the number of the beast? Who's the Antichrist? But none of these actually get to what the main point of Revelation is about. What is the meaning of this book? Why why is it here? I'm going to answer that question. But first, we have to understand that our approach to hermeneutics, which means the way we interpret the Bible, determines a lot of what we get out of the Bible. There's generally two approaches to reading scripture. One is, is exegesis, which means to read out of the text. So in exegesis, you're asking questions, you're trying to figure out what the author's original intent was, what's going on here, what do these words mean, all these things. The second is eisegesis. And in eisegesis, you don't do any of that, you read into the text. And you say, here's what I think, here's my culture, here's my life, here's my understanding of my existence, I'll read that into the scripture. One is good, one is bad. A good plan is for exegesis is what's called the interpretive journey. Exegesis is what we should be aiming for. It's, again, to draw the meaning out of the text. It's to say, Scripture has a meaning, and I want to know what that meaning is. So I'm going to give you, it's real quick, and if you want these later, let me know. Send me an email, mike at jchurch.life, and I will send them to you. Step one is grasping the text in their talent. This is to, to look at the Bible and say, okay, what did the text mean to the biblical audience? Step two. Measuring the width of the river to cross. Remember, this is written as like a journey. So the question is, what's the differences between the biblical audience and us? So as I'm reading something, at first I have to ask, what did it mean to them? And then I have to ask, what's the differences between us? Third, I have to cross the principalization, principalization, I should have wrote a different word. Cross the bridge. It's on the screen. (laughs) Yeah, doesn't matter. What is the theological principle in this text? What did it mean to the audience? What are the differences between us? And, and then what's the theological principle that's, that's inside this text? Number four is consult the biblical map. How does this theological principle fit with the rest of the Bible? Like when I look at this and I say, okay, now what, how does this line up with the rest of Scripture? And then number five is when we finally get to application. Grasping the text in our town, how do individual Christians today live out this theological principle. The problem is is with eisegesis is it starts with number five and sometimes adds in the other thing. We can't approach scripture and say, I want to know what I want to have out of this. I I want Jesus to tell me what I want to know and let him make me feel good about what I'm reading. That's not what we should do. The problem is, is we're not robots. We all approach scripture with certain preconceptions. We have things, our history, our our educational, our religious upbringing, or lack thereof, whatever it might be. We have things we bring to the text and say, well, see, it's right there. Now I can point to chapter and verse and say, well, see. But that's not what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to let Scripture change us, not change Scripture. With Revelation, this is even harder for two reasons. Well, three reasons. One, there's questions about what Revelation is about. And there's generally three ideas, and for some reason, we like to separate things out. So there's generally three things that scholars will look at and say, okay, Revelation is about what will happen. Eschatology, the end times, future events, that's all it's about is what's going to happen at the end. And some scholars will look at it and say, no, no, no. Revelation is about what had happened. It looks to the past, like Domination or Nero was ruling and persecuting Christians, and John's writing to just encourage those people. And then other people are like, no, 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 it's just an encouragement to believers at all times, and that's all it's for. 
And then we have another problem with Revelation, and that's that it deals with a lot of prophecy. Now, we're going to deal with a little bit more with prophecy in a couple of weeks, but prophecy in the Bible generally has two different meanings. There's foretelling prophecy, which is predicting, and then there's forthtelling prophecy, which is explaining things or calling things out. Now, the problem with a lot of foretelling prophecy in the Bible is that it both has a near-present and far-present meaning. A good example is in Isaiah chapter 7, when Isaiah prophesies that a virgin will conceive and give birth. He was talking about a young woman who lived in King Ahaz's court, and she was going to get pregnant, and by the time the boy was old enough, this thing would happen. But it also had this far future meaning that nobody expected that Jesus would be born of the Virgin Mary. We have a third problem, and that's that Revelation is apocalyptic literature. And so the Bible Project has a really good definition on this one, and that's to give us a heavenly perspective on our earthly circumstances so that in every generation of God's people can be challenged, comforted, and given hope for the future. These are all the issues that we have when we bring to Revelation, when we're trying to pull out the meaning of stuff, the reason that you can have like series of books that say this is what it's about and series of books that say this is what it's about, and we've got entire denominations that have split and like people infighting over things because they can't answer some of these questions to the satisfactory of somebody else in the congregation. The problem is, is none of that is what Revelation is actually about. The, 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 the most meat that you're going to get on a bone for Revelation is that God wins and nothing can thwart his plans, purposes, and ultimate victory. That's the meaning in Revelation. Like these things are important and they're really important when we're trying to understand That is what's most important. God wins, and nothing can thwart his plans, purposes, and ultimate victory. When it comes down to it, that's the message we take away from this. I sat down the other day, and I, I'm like, okay, if we're going to preach on Revelation, I've got to read the whole thing. So I sat down, read it, beginning, end, about an hour and ten minutes, missed a lot of it, because you know how that goes. <coughs> Excuse me. But as I'm reading it, that's what I keep seeing over and over and over again. Yes, this is important, and yes, this question is brought up, and that's important. And and why does this beast have so many horns that have horns? And is it a mortal? Like, all these things occur, and it's good questions. But at the end of it, at the beginning of it, and then at the end of it, that's the statement that we take away from it. So Revelation chapter 1, verses 13 through 16. John writes and says, Then I turned to see whose voice it was that spoke to me. When I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was one like the Son of Man, dressed in a robe with a golden sash wrapped around his chest. His hair was as white as wool, white as snow. His eyes were like fiery flame. His feet were like bronze, as if it were fired in a furnace, and his voice like the sound of cascading waters. He had seven stars in his right hand. A double-edged sword came from his mouth, and his face was shining like the sun at full This is the depiction John has of Jesus. Long robe with a golden sash. He's royalty. Hair white like wool, white as snow. Eyes like a fiery flame. His feet like bronze. His his voice like roaring waters. Seven stars in his hand. A double-edged sword in his mouth. His face as bright as the sun. This is who Jesus is. He's not in the grave anymore. I feel like some people... I'm going to get in trouble. I feel like some people try and worship a dead Messiah. 
they like a good guy Christ. They like a crucified son of man because if he's dead, you don't have to deal with him. If he's just a good guy, then you don't have to worry about that. He has no authority over my life. But the moment he's raised, the moment he is, is this Jesus, the one whose eyes are like fires, now all of a sudden you've got to deal with this Jesus. He's the king, the victorious one. Jesus is the ancient of days. Daniel chapter 7 verse 9 says, as I kept watching, this is Daniel, hundreds of years before Jesus was born, as I kept watching, thrones were set in place, and the ancient of days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow, and the hair on his head as white as wool. His throne was flaming fire, and his wheels were blazing fire. He is the king, the victorious one. While on earth, Jesus was meek. He was restrained. He didn't rely on his divine power. But let's be clear, he's God. He's all-powerful. He's the mighty one. Jesus is the Alpha and Omega. Jesus is the mighty one. Jesus is El Shaddai, God Most High. Jesus is Jehovah Jireh, the one who provides. Jesus is the I Am. Jesus is the shepherd. Jesus is the light. Jesus is the rock. Jesus is the ruler of all nations. Jesus is the judge of nations. Jesus is the judge of nations. I just said that. Jesus is the bridegroom. Jesus is the sower. And Jesus is the ancient of days. He's victorious, and he's coming back in power. That's who Jesus is. When we sing, holy, 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 that's who we're singing to. Holy means separated. Holy means different. Holy means something that is so far from you that you have no other word to explain it except holy. That's who Jesus is. The mighty one who sits on the throne. The earth is his footstool. Everything was created by him, for him, and through him, and in, all, in him all things find their being. That's who Jesus is. And so he says to his churches, his bride, he tells John, write letters to the churches and let them know that I see them. He could come and just show up, but because he is who he is, and he came once in meekness, he comes again in power. So before he does that, he tells his servant John, Tell the churches, I see them. These churches can represent a lot of things. And to some of us, it does represent those of us who are feeling weak. Those of us who, who life just continues to beat you down. You feel like, I'm never going to catch a break. No matter how hard I try, I can't seem to get it. No matter how much effort I put in, there's always somebody who's getting ahead of me. To those and to that weak church, Jesus says, be strengthened. Because I come for you. Remain steadfast in me. To those who, who put on the fake face and, and show up and, and wear the right clothes, and I'm not talking about the, you know, jerseys today. Uh, we're a diverse group, and I love it. But to those who, who put on the, the, the good church face and, and show up at church every Sunday and you go to the potlucks and you praise Jesus, and, but inside you really you just don't care. Inside, you're dead because you're just putting on a show because you're hoping that somebody else sees you, and they'll say, oh, it's so good that you go to church. Jesus says to you, you better clean up. I see the inside, and it's ugly. And then to those who started strong, like you, you started this whole Jesus thing with the right attitude, with the right motivations, with the right hunger, and all of a sudden you started to learn some things. And you started to learn some things, and you went, wow, I, I got me a good education. 
I understand some things now. I start feeling real grown. Is what about me? You forgot about me. You forgot that the reason you're studying the scriptures is to know me. You forgot that the reason you're singing the songs is to worship me. To those, Jesus says, return to me. Let me be your first love again and join in heaven's cries. As Brad saying, and this was beautiful, because Brad and I don't really talk about worship a lot. Like, I just figure, I'm going to tell him what I'm preaching on. He's going to do what he does. I'm going to do what I do. And we're going to trust that the Holy Spirit sorts this whole thing out. Maybe to Brad's anxiety. I don't know. <laughs> I do love you, Brad. Revelation 4, 8, the second half says, Holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty, who was, who is, and who is coming. 4.11, our Lord, our God, you are worthy to receive glory and honor and power because you have created all things, and because of your will they exist and were created. That's what Jesus wants for his church, for his people, for his bride, and for the whole earth, is to be able to sing that song together with heaven. Why? Because he needs somebody to stroke his ego? No, because he understands that when we see who he is rightly, we understand who we are. When we understand that he's God and that we are not, we understand what our place is, and we can walk through life in confidence and victory. When we know who God is, and when we worship him as God, our lives are better for it. Why? Revelation 5.10 says, Jesus, no, that's not what Jesus, that's sorry, sorry. It tells us in Revelation 5.10 that Jesus wins the victory over sin, death, and the grave, and that everything is secured, and that we will reign with Christ. We will reign with Christ. I, don't, I, I can't even imagine what that looks like. It's probably why it doesn't go too into depth in that, because what's it going to look like to reign with Jesus? But over and over again in this book, we see that God is victorious. He is worthy, and he's in control, and he's in good. He is good. I'm going to give you some scriptures, and again, if you want these, send me an email. I'll send them to you. But these are the scriptures in the, in the book of Revelation alone that talk about how this is playing out and who God really is and how we should see him. Revelation 4, 8, chapter 5, verses 9 through 10, and then 12 through 13. Chapter 7, verses 10, 12, 14 through 17. Chapter 11, verses 15 through 18. Chapter 12, verses 10 through 12. Chapter 15, verses 3 through 4. Chapter 16, verses 5 through 7. Chapter 18, 2 through 8, and then 20. Chapter 19, 1 through 5, 7 and 8, and 16. Chapter 21, verses 3 and 4. I think Jesus wants us to understand something. These are all verses that talk about how he is holy. Talk about how he is worthy. Talk about how he sits on the throne. Talks about how he will do what he said he's going to do. He wants us to understand that he wins. Because in this life, it often looks like we lose. I don't know if anybody else has had those moments as, as a parent or as a friend or as a child when you know that someone you love is struggling. And I'm talking not, not struggling just physically ill because that hurts you. But when you see people unnecessarily struggling in life, and you just, you're praying, and you're like, Jesus, I just want them to see that it would be so much easier if they would just let go. And it breaks your heart because they just won't for whatever reason. And then we have those that, that do struggle with physical illness. My, my, uh, my parents are adopting my niece and nephew. Uh, so the, they're 13, and I think Lizzie's like five. I'm going to go with five. 
Um, and so my nephew, Jojo, he's, he's, got some, he's got some disabilities. He can't see very well. I mean, his glasses are as thick as Coke bottles. He doesn't speak very well. He forgets to swallow, so like half of what he says sounds like a gurgle. Um, he, he's got learning disabilities. He, he struggles to comprehend things, and he's doing better. And then add to that that he was taken from his parents. So he's got all that going on as well. And if, you, if you've never interacted with foster kids, they hurt on a level you don't even understand. When we did foster care, we had a little boy, and he would just let out this guttural scream sometimes. Two years old, and he would, like, scream like a grizzly bear because of all this pain and rage that's built up inside of him. We're talking to my mom when we went to visit, uh, we went to Maine, and then the last day we popped into Massachusetts. I mean, you pop into Massachusetts. You get out as quick as you can. <sighs> Not worth it. But I'm talking to my mom, and she's like, I don't know. It's like she's like, it's the weirdest thing. He gets mad, and if he knows that he has to have a Zoom, because his mom lives in Florida, if he has to have a Zoom video with his mom, afterwards he gets so angry, and he lets out this, like, primal scream from inside. People hurt. And I look at that and I say, Jesus, just heal him. I'm not talking about giving better vision. I'm not talking about make him not autistic. I'm not talking about make him not have a learning disability. I'm talking about his soul. Heal his soul, Jesus. Because I've seen it happen. I've seen what happens when God touches somebody with that amount of pain inside. And for that, I will continue to cry, holy, 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 are you Lord God Almighty. Because I know that you can do this. That I pray most mornings, bless you, uh, Rachel's prayer, or Rachel's cry in the book of Genesis is, give me children or I die. That's how, that's how much she knew she needed to have children. That's why we pray as a staff, like we get together on Tuesday mornings and we pray for everybody. We pray for the things that you send in that are hurting you because we know that God is good. We know that he's holy. We know that he's Lord God Almighty and we're pleading the blood of Jesus and who Jesus is over your lives because we want to see him move in power in your life because he's good. But there's going to come a day when all that ends comes a day when, when, when Jesus comes back and all the gifts and the working cease. 1 Corinthians 13, verses 8 through 10 says, But as for prophecies, they will come to an end. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will come to an end. For we know in part, we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will end. Some bad hermeneutics over the years have says, well, this was about spiritual gifts in the Bible. But, but I don't see that the Bible is what I'm supposed to call perfect. I see Jesus as the one who is absolutely perfect. I'm not saying the Bible's wrong, but Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith. Jesus is the Lamb of God. Jesus is the Holy and Righteous One. And when Jesus comes back, we don't have to do things anymore. If you've got the gift of evangelism, once you get to heaven, you're unemployed. You got nothing left to do. So like when we sing on a Sunday morning, you guys are like, you might as well think about like think of it as an audition. Like our worship team, they've got a job. They get to heaven, they're gonna keep singing. The rest of us are gonna get auto-tuned. Jesus comes back, and we don't need 
prophecy. We don't need exhortation. We don't need gifts of knowledge. We don't need healing. Because he's coming back and he's going to make it all okay. And this gives us a sense of urgency. In this world, there are two different options. Life in sin or life in Christ. And I don't want to scare anybody or play on your emotions, but there's going to come a day where you have to choose Christ or choose your own way. Because the kingdom of God is here because Jesus brought it, but it hasn't arrived in its fullness. The kingdom of God is this amazing now, not yet thing. But Revelation 21, verses 3 through 4, Then I heard a loud voice from the throne, Look, God's dwelling is with humanity, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things are going to pass away. There, I, this, this tearing inside of me where I look for that day and I pray, Maranatha, Lord Jesus, come. And I, I look forward to that day and I say, Jesus, today would be a good day. And I look forward to that day and I say, Jesus, if you wanted to come today, I'd be okay with it. And then I think about the people that I know who don't know him. And I say, Jesus, maybe we could just wait one more day. And, and give me somebody to share that with. Give me somebody to talk to. Give me somebody that I can share the gospel with in word or in deed. Give me somebody that I can love like you love them. I want him to come back today. But if you don't know him, I hope he waits till tomorrow. We're going to close out with this. When God created everything, remember? This is how we tied this whole picture back together. We started with, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We looked through the six days of creation, and we look at everything that he creates, and then we looked and we saw that he created a garden. And in that garden, he planted two trees. One of them is the tree of life. One of them is the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And he tells Adam, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't do it. You ever notice he didn't say anything about eating from the tree of life? Adam could have eaten from that tree all day long, no problem. But he didn't. He fell into sin, corrupted the whole world, caused the need for a savior, brought into the world all the things that we hate, cancer, disease, heart attacks, all of these things are a product of the fall. Originally, there was two trees that, got, that, that man could have eaten from. And so man sinned, and we looked at it, and we said, okay, man sinned, and God did man a favor by kicking him out of the garden. He says, I don't want you to eat from the tree of life in this current state of yours. I don't want you to live forever in your brokenness or your sin. So you have to leave. Look here in Revelation, we see Revelation 22, 2. There was a tree on each side of the river, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, producing its fruit every month. The leaves were healing for the nations. It goes on to talk about how there is a tree of life on each side of the river. There's two trees once again. But at this point, you're only there to eat one of those two trees if you already know who he is. If you've already said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. If you've already said, Jesus, I trust you. I don't understand it all, but I'm going to trust you. And you get to eat from the tree of life. 
We already ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and that didn't work out so well for us. He's going to give us just the tree of life. And the river shows us that it doesn't matter where we're at in heaven, we have access to life. We have access to healing, to fullness. We're going to walk in the fullness of who God is, and just because we're there, and it's going to be perfect. Today, however, we have to choose which tree we want to eat from. Today, we're presented with an option before us every single day where God says, Michael, do you want to eat from the tree of life today or do you want to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Do you want life or do you want death today? Do you, do you want to build people up? Do you want to be built up yourself or, or are you more concerned with your own ways and your own life? Because that's what these two trees represent, God or ourself. God's way or my way. God's way of doing things or the way I want to do things. And God, because he loves us. This, remember, this is who Jesus is. Eyes of fire, hair white as wool, voice the sound of rushing waters. He's not meek Jesus anymore. He did his job dying and raising again. He did his job living a perfect life. But because he's good, he doesn't show up right now as who he fully is. Instead, he says, listen, I just want you to trust me. Which tree do you want to eat from today? And I'll be honest, sometimes I eat from the wrong tree. Sometimes I eat from the wrong tree, and then at the end of the day I go, that was a bad day. It was a bad day because I chose uh, poorly. I chose things wrongly. Sometimes I get to the end of the day and it's like, that was a bad day because people were people. You ever have days like that? You go to Walmart? You know what I'm talking about? It happens at Target, but Walmart? <laughs> you go to Walmart and people are especially people-y? That's how we say it in our car? Wow, people are being real people-y today. But that doesn't matter. If I'm eating from the tree of life, then people can be people all they want. My job's not to get mad at them. My job's not to get frustrated with them. My job is to show them Jesus. My job is to say, listen, I don't know if you know this, but, but, but I can be the way I am because I trust who Jesus is. Like, I see him clearly, and I understand who I am. Broken, frail, weak, sometimes frustrating for no reason whatsoever. But Jesus is good. Don't, don't follow me, follow Jesus. And if you do follow me, only follow me as so much as I'm following Jesus. That's what Paul said, follow me as I follow Jesus. As I follow Jesus. So I'm going to invite the band up, and we're going we're gonna to do an altar call this morning for two things. So if we can have our prayer team come up as well. I want to pray for two things. And you don't have to come forward for prayer. You, you can sit, you can reach out to somebody near you if that's what you need to do. But I want to encourage you to, to, to get prayer for two things this morning. Number one, you, if you're honest in your own assessment, you would not say that you follow Jesus. You know who he is. I think he's kind of decent. But you kind of prefer, if you're honest in your own heart, a dead Messiah that you don't have to deal with. Or just a good guy Jesus who was a good teacher. And you want to not be like that anymore. 
And the other thing I would ask you to come up for a prayer for, or again, turn to somebody near you if you need prayer, is that you do see Jesus as who he is. And you're like, Jesus, I, I do see that you're holy, but I feel like there's something inside of me stopping me from following you the way I want to. Because the enemy does not want you to follow holy, holy, holy Jesus. He's okay if, you, if Jesus is a good guy. But the moment there's something inside of you that starts stirring and you want to follow Jesus with all that you have and you want to say, I don't care about anything else, I'm willing to lay it all down and cast it all aside because there's nothing more important than you, Jesus, that's when you're going to run into issues. So if that's where you are, then ask for prayer as well. So I'm going to pray. And uh, if, you, if you need to accept Christ, then pray with me. Lord Jesus, I want to trust you. I want to know you. And I want to be forgiven. For the rest of us, Lord, I pray that you move in power in us and that if we can catch just a, a glimpse of who you are on your heavenly throne as the Ancient of Days, that I think we might be changed. That, that it could be a, a life-altering moment if we catch a glimpse of who you are. Jesus, I thank you that you don't completely reveal who you are because I, I feel like we would just be so awestruck we wouldn't know what to do. But if we can catch a glimpse of you this morning, Jesus, if you can just pull back the curtain a little bit and, and, and open our eyes to the reality of who you are, the risen king on the throne, that I think everything could change, Jesus. Our families would change, the way we parents would change, the way we'd be a spouse would change, the way we, everything would change if we could see you rightly, Jesus. So open our eyes, and Lord, if it hurts us, then let it hurt. If that's what it takes to see you rightly, Jesus, let us see you.